I'm going to invite everyone to turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 52. We are going to finish our study of Jeremiah this morning. Jeremiah chapter 52. Uh, we are going to read a few different sections along this morning. We're going to start with verses 1 through 11. So please uh, turn and turn your attention and your focus to God's word. Uh, we definitely need to hear from our God this morning. Jeremiah 52 verses 1 through 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and, to laid, and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people in the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night, by the way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. Oh, please join me in prayer. The heavens declare your glory, O God, and the skies they proclaim your handiwork. Day by day they pour out speech, and night by night they give knowledge. Your word is perfect, and it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. Your, your precepts are right. They rejoice the heart. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. And so your word is to be desired, greatly desired, even more than much fine gold. And so we ask that you would let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, that they might be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're finishing our study of Jeremiah this morning. And in many ways, Jeremiah ends where it began. It comes full circle. Uh, the book opened with the calling of Jeremiah to be a prophet, a calling that he faithfully fulfilled for almost 40 years. When God called Jeremiah, he touched Jeremiah's mouth and he said, behold, I have put my words into your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations, over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, 
to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And we've read, we've listened to, we've studied the words of Jeremiah. And as we have, the first part of God's words in chapter one seem to have been fulfilled. Through, through Jeremiah, his prophet, we have seen God pluck up and tear down. He has destroyed, he has overthrown. We've seen this. But what about that second part of what he told Jeremiah at the beginning of this book? When has God planted? When has God built up? And that's what we're left asking as, as we draw our study of Jeremiah to a close. We're, we're left asking, where's that second part? But perhaps our, our problem is that we have a sanitized view of what it means to plant. We tend to think of planting, I think, in a, in a romanticized way. Many of us probably think of our class projects when we were young and our teachers would, would bring in little uh, ceramic planting pots and some fresh soil purchased in a plastic bag and some seeds that were guaranteed to grow fast, typically something like a bean where you could watch it grow over a week, sometimes inches in a day. But farmers, especially farmers in the ancient world, they know, they know that planting is violent work and it begins with going to war with the soil. It seems impenetrable, impregnable. And you have to go and you have to plow it and it's backbreaking work as you turn it over and prepare it for planting. But that's not the worst of it. What happens to the seed as it goes into the ground is often forgotten, but the Bible won't let us forget. It's careful to remind us of that reality. It speaks of it at least twice. First Corinthians says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Jesus said something similar, even, even more vivid in John's gospel. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In order for there to be a harvest, fruit, life, something has to die. Planting is violent work, but it is the only way for the harvest to come. The, the point of a wheat seed is to make bread. But first it has to be planted, die, and grow into a wheat plant. It's the only way to get bread. No death, no bread, no bread, no life. In many ways, the book of Jeremiah is about planting seeds. And so it should not surprise us that there is violence, that there is death. But we would miss the point entirely if we focused on the death and did not look to the harvest to come. That would be like thinking that the point of farming was to tear up the ground and kill seeds. The point is the harvest. The point is the fruit. The farmer always plants in the spring with a view toward the harvest in the fall. And so too, the book of Jeremiah tells of the work of planting with a view to the harvest. 
And that's the message of Jeremiah 52 as it draws this book to a close. To see this, we want to first look at the demise of Zedekiah, the, the false king, who was not truly the king of Israel. And then we want to look at the restoration of Jehoiakim, who, who was the true king, the rightful king. And then finally, we want to look at the destruction of the temple and the provision that God makes for the poor remnant who remain in Jerusalem. And as we look at these things, what we're going to see is this, that, that being reshaped into God's image is violent work, but the end is life and hope and joy. That's what we want to see as we look at Jeremiah 52 uh, in the few minutes before us this morning. Uh, we, we read about King Zedekiah, and we have encountered Zedekiah a few times throughout Jeremiah, and his story comes to an end in our passage today. He, as I said, was not the true king, the true heir to the throne. He was Jehoiakim's brother uh, when, when Nebuchadnezzar first came in to Jerusalem. Uh, Jehoiakim was a young king. He became king very young, and he was only 18 years old when Nebuchadnezzar came in and threatened war if Jehoiakim would not surrender. So he surrendered and he was taken away and imprisoned in Babylon. His son became king for only three months. And then Nebuchadnezzar uh, saw Jehoiakim's brother Zedekiah and thought that he would be easier to control to make a puppet king in Jerusalem. And so he put Zedekiah on the throne and for a long time it worked. Zedekiah showed much greater allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar than he did to God. <laughs> Until until as we saw a couple weeks ago, God actually told Zedekiah to surrender into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah was not a good king. He was not a faithful follower of God. He was a rebel. And it seems that the only thing that could give Zedekiah the resolve to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar was God telling him to submit. <laughs> And in his rebellion to God, it was so strong, his rebellion to God was so strong that when God actually told him to continue his submission to Nebuchadnezzar, that Zedekiah finally found a spine, a backbone, and he took a stand and refused to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And so for 18 months, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. As time wore on, the famine became great. And eventually uh, there was no food and people were hungry. And then there was a breach made in the wall. And under the cover of night, Zedekiah and his army snuck out through that little hole in the wall and they fled. As they came to Jericho, the, the Babylonians caught up with him and, and Zedekiah's army fled. And first, Nebuchadnezzar put all of Zedekiah's children to the sword before Zedekiah's watching eyes. And then to make sure that this was the last thing that Zedekiah ever saw, he poked out Zedekiah's eyes. And then he imprisoned him until his death. And so the rebel became the captive. So what was Zedekiah's legacy? As we draw our study to a close, what is the legacy that he left? Forever he is remembered as the last king before the exile. He is remembered as the one who rejected Israel's God. He tried to remake God 
and reality for that matter, into his own image, he pursued what he wanted to be true rather than what was actually true. He had been instructed, he had been warned, but there was a way that seemed right to him and he followed it rather than following the word of God. And that way led to his downfall, his captivity, and his death. He was not the rightful king, but one plain king like a child in playtime, in creative, imaginative play. He enjoyed power for a while, but it could not and it would not last. And it all came crashing down in humiliation, death, imprisonment. That's Zedekiah's legacy. So let's read about Jehoiakim at the end of the chapter. Let's skip down to verse 31 through 34 uh, and read these verses. And in the 37th year of exile, uh, in the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, Ewell Marduk, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. It's against Zedekiah's story that we must read the conclusion of Jehoiakim's own journey. In the last few verses of Jeremiah, we read about Jehoiakim after 37 years in prison in Babylon, where, where Zedekiah's story ended as the captive. That's where Jehoiakim's story really begins. He's all but forgotten for a long time, a captive imprisoned uh, in, in Babylon for almost four decades. And then almost as an aside, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar's son released Jehoiakim from prison. He gave him an allowance and allowed him to dine at the king's table every day. Literally, verse 31 says, he lifted the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And this is an ancient phrase, uh, to lift one's head. The idea was the one captured bows his head before his captor, and the captor has a sword in his hand, and, and the head is there to remove or to lift and to grant the life of the captive back to him. After 37 years in prison, Jehoiakim's life is given back to him. His head is lifted. And this shouldn't come as a surprise because God has been protecting David's line for years. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that one of his sons would always sit on his throne forever. That, that line of David was almost wiped out several times. At one point, it came down to one small infant who was hidden from his enemies for a few years until he became king. Uh, it's because of this promise to David that when Solomon's son Rehoboam uh, rebelled against God and God took the kingdom from him, he left him still with two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, because of his promise to David. 
God made a promise and he repeats that promise. He repeats it in Jeremiah 33. And God always keeps his promises. The lifting of Jehoiakim's head, his deliverance from prison, is not proof to how good Jehoiakim is. It's a testimony to how faithful God is. It's a testament to the the unswerving commitment of God to keep his word. And so Jehoiakim, the, the heir of David, is spared having been captured and left for dead, put in a hole in the ground and forgotten about. It's as if he's resurrected, he's restored, and his life is given back to him. So what's Jehoiakim's legacy? It's here that we're able to see God paint a perfect picture with imperfect materials. As an individual, as a man, Uh, Jehoiakim was nothing special. But the arc of his life, through that, through that whole story of his life, God paints a very interesting picture and has Jeremiah record it for us. You see, Jehoiakim is the rightful king, the son of David, who surrenders into his enemy's hands, but is given back his life when all hope seemed lost. When when Jesus came into this world, he too is known as the son of David, David's heir. He's part of the king's line. And like Jehoiakim, a time would come for Jesus to surrender into his enemy's hands. And as with Jehoiakim, darkness descended, hope was lost. And as with Jehoiakim, Jesus was given back his life and he was established on the throne of David forever. Jehoiakim's legacy was to teach us to never discount the promises of God, even when we feel like all hope is lost. His legacy was to assure us that God's king would always endure, that not even death can stop the promises of God. I think it also teaches us something else. I think sometimes when we see people rebel and walk away, they turn their back on God. Even for decades, we we start to lose hope. From an earthly perspective, we just don't see any way that that things could get better, that that that, that rebellious one could ever change course. I think it's because we focus on man. We focus on what we deserve, what we're capable of. And when we focus on that, it is hard to find hope. But from a heavenly perspective, there's always hope. Because a heavenly perspective teaches us to focus on the love and the power and the faithfulness of God. When God's love is involved, anything is possible. How do you tend to look at people when they they fall into rebellion? With hope or despair? I know how hard it is for me. But may we learn the legacy of Jehoiakim and never suppose that God is limited by our short-sighted notions and ideas of what is possible. And all this leads us to the center section of this chapter, verses 12 through 30. Let me just read verses 12 through 16. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, 
It was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who served the King of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captains of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And, and Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. In this center section, all that's left in Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is burned and it's plundered the king's palace also. The walls of the city are, are broken down. Most of the remaining citizens, especially the influential and the skilled, were taken away into Babylon. And then to make an example of everyone, the captain of the guard took the chief priests, the city officials, uh, the military and civic leaders, and the representatives of the people, and he put them to death. And the point was clear. It was to show Babylon's power. It was to emphasize their victory, it was meant to demoralize the Jews. Every vestige of Israel's glory was erased at the sweep of a hand. And the only ones who remained were some of the poorest of the land and they were left to care for the vines and to plow the fields. That backbreaking work of plowing and planting would actually continue in God's land. The land was essentially left to the poor, the meek. The promise of Psalm 37 was experienced as the meek inherited the land and for the first time in decades, no longer heard the sounds of war, the threat of death, and were just left to till the land in peace. Think of what they saw as all of this took place. The rich who seemed to have all the benefits and the privileges were gone, either killed or imprisoned. Every emblem of prosperity and glory was erased from the land overnight. All the gold, silver, and bronze in the land were stripped and, and carted off. Like the worst stock market crash ever, the entire wealth of the land evaporated overnight. All they had left was the soil and the crops. And through this, they could see the faithful hand of their God. The temple was good, but it was not the hope of the people. It represented God's presence among them, but his presence among them did not depend on the temple. Their hope was bound up in, in whether or not God was their God, whether or not he was still with them. His, his presence did not depend on the temple. They could have the temple and be abandoned by God, or they could lose the temple, and he could still protect them. What God was teaching them, what they were learning, was, was not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thief can break in and steal, but to lay up treasures in heaven where, where neither could happen. They learned to be content 
with the presence of God, even if they lost the symbol of his presence. They learned that, that hope was found not in earthly wealth, and that earthly wealth could even be a detriment. In a very real way, their poverty was their salvation. As everything they thought of as important was taken away, they learned what truly mattered. And in time, the temple would be built again. But now they were able to see past the physical building to understand that ultimately, God dwells with his people. They are the true temple. If the physical temple could be brought low and then rebuilt, then the true temple could be brought low and rebuilt. So could God's people. In fact, sometimes in order for something to grow right, it must first die. Isn't that what a seed teaches us? Don't these plowmen, these vine dressers, know this better than most? Hasn't God said that his people are a vineyard? How will they ever be a fruitful harvest without first experiencing death and new birth? And that's really the message of Jeremiah. God is, is shaping us to be like him, not changing who he is in order to make us happy. He's remaking us into his own image. And that can be a painful process because he's gonna strip away our comforts in order to get to our hearts and to do the important work. It's often when things are at their bleakest that, that hope is actually the closest. It's, it's, when, the new, it's when the seed dies that, that new birth is at hand. God understands what it means to plant seeds. He knew what he was saying in Jeremiah 1. He is, after the all, the one who told Jeremiah to buy a burned-out field so that the exiles would have a place to come home to. For God's people, judgment is never complete. It's, it's just the death of a seed that must give way and beget new birth. God tears down so that he might plant and build up. That's who the God of Jeremiah is. This message of Jeremiah 52, the whole book really, wasn't just for the remnant left in Jerusalem to tend the vines and to plow the fields. This is the message we need to hear over and over. We are his people. We are his temple. We are his body. Every week, normally, the Lord brings us to his table to eat bread and drink wine, pictures of his body and blood. And we have to remember that, that we would never have that bread had a seed not fallen to the ground and died and become a wheat plant. God never wants us to forget what the body of Jesus looks like. In that bread and wine, we see Jesus Christ, the rightful king who was captured, he, the true temple who was destroyed. And he, like a seed, was put into the ground. His people wept and they thought all was lost, that all hope was gone. What they didn't know is that it was the necessary step for what would come next. When Jesus said that it is only when a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies that it can produce much fruit, he was prophesying his death. 
the end of Jeremiah, the stripping of all things, but preserving of a remnant to possess the land, the restoration of the king after a long imprisonment. These are meant to remind us that the only way to victory, to life, to inheritance, always comes through death and resurrection. That's the message of Jeremiah. That's the message made visible in the Lord's Supper where we're able to gather together and enjoy it together this morning. It's the constant message of the scriptures. And may we, his children, never lose hold of that message and may we never lose hold of hope. Let us pray. Our great God of the harvest, we love the idea of ripe and full fields, but we often avoid the hard work of plowing, tilling. We fear death, the death that must come before a seed can sprout forth in life. And we ask that you would help us to appreciate the work that you are doing to endure with us. May we endure with you. May we endure the pain, the toil, that that it takes to see fruit come forth. Help us to confess that you are good always. Be glorified as you continue to care for us. Bear much fruit in our lives and let us be the seeds you plant. We thank you for our time together. And as we go this morning, we ask that you would bless us and that you would keep us. That you would make your face to shine upon us and that you would be gracious to us. That you would lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen.